Hey everybody, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, the podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today, with a little bit of fear and trembling, and with our special guest Jessica Griffith, we're going to get a little spooked. We're going to talk about Jennifer Kent's 2014 suspense horror film, The Babadook. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers, and we try to make our case. So in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, we're going to discuss why the Babadook matters for the work of the church. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we are going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with the Babadook for the lectionary week ahead which will be year C, July 3rd, the 14th Sunday of Ordinary Time. Finally, we'll offer up some postludes, some preacher thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following. But before we get too far down the line, we want to introduce our special guest for today's show, Jessica Griffith. Jessica is a widely published essayist and the author of Love and Salt, A Spiritual Friendship in Letters, which you should put at the top of your list, as well as being the co-founder of Sick Pilgrim, an online community for the spiritually disturbed at patheos.com. Last week, Jessica invited or instructed or maybe dared Adam and me to go and watch The Babadook, and we've done it. And so she's here to tell us why this movie matters for the church. Thank you so much for being here, Jessica. Oh, thank you for having me. So I'm really glad you're here because this movie, The Babadook, is not a movie that I ever would have watched on my own without some prompting. Generally Uh speaking... Generally speaking, I don't, I don't like watching horror. Yesterday afternoon, I sat in my very well-lit office watching this film on an iPad screen just so that I could turn away whenever I felt too chicken. But then, The Babadook is a little more complicated than I gave it credit for. On one level, this is a movie about a sinister presence who begins to terrorize a widow Amelia and her young son Samuel after they find a mysterious children's book on the shelf and read it together. So far, so good, and so typical. But where I got interested and where I couldn't stop watching is when the Babadook began to work in the rich metaphorical language of unspoken grief and repressed anger and loss and the ways they haunt us and won't let us go. By which I mean, I don't think that writer-director Jennifer Kent just wants me to jump in my seat. I think she's after something even scarier. I think she wants me to talk about my feelings. So am I right? Why did we watch this movie? And Jessica, why does it matter for the church? Okay, so I love horror movies. Not the slash and gore kind, but real psychological horror. Um, Psychological horror is pretty much what drives me to the study of religion and myth and fairy tale, which is what I love to do and what I love to write about. Um, And maybe it's even what drives me to the practice of my own faith. I really like to explore the dark side of the psyche And I like the story that the Christian faith tells about why that exists and how we can tame or transform it. And somehow all of this gets tied into this really great horror movie, The Babadook. Um, I love the way this movie shows a physical manifestation of grief. I think it's so funny. You just talked about, you describe it as, you know, the horror coming out of this children's book. And that is kind of a neat plot device, but it, is so not the core of the movie at all that I could almost forget that it's in the story, but we maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. But um, so this physical manifestation of grief is the Babadook. 
And I was just talking to a friend about this, how we don't have a culture of grief in our Christian churches, not the way we used to. We used to have it. We used to have it in Victorian times. When someone died, you would literally stop time. You would stop clocks. You would cover mirrors in black cloth. You would wear black for six months or whatever the mourning regulations were. Nobody expected you to be a normal person and go on living a normal life after losing a close loved one, at least not for a while. And when my mother died, I was 14, and this was one of the most painful aspects of her death for me, was that the world just kept turning, and everything seemed indifferent, and I was expected to go to school and be on the dance team, and there was really no time, there was no lapse between the death and when this was expected to happen. It was literally like my mom died, we went to the funeral, and I was back in school. And I think that was so desperately wrong. Um, when you don't honor grief and, and give it its, ch- its chance to sort of naturally take over your life, it goes underground and then it gets expressed in ways that I think have, and I have seen in my own life, can go on to be life-threatening. I mean, that's what happened to me. I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, complicated grief syndrome, a whole slew of other psychic, um, psychiatric diagnoses, um, And that's exactly what happens in the Babadook. The the grief is ignored and misunderstood, and it literally goes underground into their basement. And that's what the Babadook is really about. Why I found it, you know, it's not terrifying to me. I actually found it really kind of darkly beautiful that um, the film shows us grief as this demonic nightmare presence. That's fair enough. But that's how grief feels. Um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that he was so surprised when he was enduring the grief after Joy Davidman's death um, that it felt so much like fear. Grief and fear are so entwined in the psyche. Um, And this film shows that it it can't really be evicted. It can't be exercised. It's not something that's ever going to be permanently gotten over, but that somehow it has to be confronted and tamed. And we should say that part of the setup in this film is that the this widow is coming up on the seventh anniversary of the death of her husband, who died going to the hospital to witness the birth of her son. And so part of the complication in here is her grief at that loss tied in with her status as a mother and to the degree to which she kind of conflates those two relationships and has all kinds of complicated feelings for her son who with whom she associates that really deep loss right her son becomes an almost a memento mori she can't look at him without thinking of death and so how do you parent this child and again that's something that resonates for me as someone who lost a parent young and then having to watch your surviving parent go on and figure out how to deal with their own grief and then have to look at their growing child who looks like the one who is lost who calls up all these memories of trauma and how that grief becomes shared and entangled and complicated between people in a family in a community yeah and even that the that your reflection in the face of your parent begins to affect how you view yourself. And I think you see that with the son in this as well, is that they are so closely enmeshed and they can't be anything but. I mean, the the relationship between uh, a parent and a child, especially in those formative ages, means that you 
you are as a parent modeling so much, but you're also revealing and reflecting so much so that the, the child is constantly seeing himself or herself through the face of the parent. And so, I mean, so you talked earlier about sort of covering mirrors um, in times of grief, and yet we can't really cover our faces as they reflect back to the people around us how we both feel about them, especially the child, at least in this movie, they're very complicated feelings uh, uh, that, the, that the mother has for the child that I think make up so much of the pathos that sort of pervades this movie. Yeah, and that's why I don't see Sam as um, this creepy demon figure, um, like a Damien in the Omen. I, I think a lot of reviewers get that wrong, honestly, that he's, he's not, he, I mean, she's obviously, Jennifer Kent's obviously playing with this trope of the demon child, the evil child in the horror movie, but she's playing with it because he's not evil. He's totally normal. He's having a totally normal reaction to post-traumatic grief. And, um, and so when we see these reactions from the other people in his community to him and the way he's beginning to see himself as a horror, as a freak, as someone who, you know, isn't normal and isn't right and, and might be dangerous. I think those are all normal grief reactions that are being suppressed. Jessica, I was really interested to hear you talk a little bit earlier about the history of the way that church communities have dealt with grief. I mean, you, you talk about the standard practice of of lament and the standard practice of periods and times of grief and the, the, the history of, of congregational life. I, I'm wondering if you have a sense of why we've changed and why we've gotten from this these kind of times of understanding the clock stopping, as you said it, to, to where we are now, where it is it seems more difficult and uh, more dangerous to try to embark on a structured period of grief, especially in community. I don't know why we have become more afraid of death than we were, except that death has become less common. And as our funeral practices and grieving practices have evolved, we've become more and more distant from the body, from the corpse. <laughs> we, um, you know, I, I remember reading that you would sit up with the body and, and faith traditions other than ours still have that, that you would sit, you wouldn't leave a dead body. You wouldn't leave your loved one. And I, I mean, I remember leaving the hospital after my mother died, literally 15 minutes after she passed away, we were in the car going home, like, what's for dinner you know <laughs> and that kind of moment you, when you think back like we just left her there for some for medical professionals to remove the tubes and clean the body these are all things that the family would have done those intimacies but we're not I mean it sounds crazy to us now I mean we're not comfortable with that we don't want to do that but I feel like those things must have been very healing because when I look back on it now seems like that was our proper role to sit with her through the night so all I can think is we've just become so distant from grief and so able to feel that we can control death and control our bodies and and we don't like seeing it and so we've pushed it aside and we and in doing that we've we've done away with these really Im psychologically and spiritually important mourning practices and so grief gets suppressed and then it turns into all sorts of other you know nasty pathologies 
maybe this is just my, my cultural critic hat comes on, but it seems a little bit like part of that is is the role of the marketplace and the role of the person as consumer that has come about where I, I, I feel like now the my relationship with grief is to be prescribed through some amount of shopping or some amount of purchasing that I can find the thing that will let that will make me feel better. Oh, that is a really good point because I remember doing this myself when my there's a in the book that you mentioned earlier, Love and Salt. Um, there's a really traumatic death in that book. Spoiler, but the way that I coped with it was I had this impulse to go to Target. You know, like I didn't know what to do. So first I Googled stuff. And then I was like, I don't, know, I don't know what to Google. And then I went to Target and I realized that I was looking for the person who died. I wasn't like when I realized there was nothing I could buy that was going to fill in that hole. I realized I was searching for the person. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right on that. We've replaced somehow consuming with grieving. Well, and I think you see a little bit grieving, of that consuming. in in the Babadook. So. The isolation of uh, the mother is contrasted with her sister and the ways in which they talk about their lives and what they're doing. And um, this community, uh, it's the only place where you see a community of people together, and it seems so shallow and desperate, where the genuineness um, of the feelings that the son has and that the mother have seem very real and yet totally untethered from any real community that could support them. And, and you talk about ancient um, or, or past grieving practices. Well, last week we talked about the, uh, the two widows uh, of Zarephath and Nain. And at Nain, there are these, um, this group of people who is accompanying the body of the dead boy. Uh, the ancient Near East had professional mourners these were people who were in the community designed to model mourning practices for the people. And they were um, they had a particular apprenticeship into that moment of being able to help people mourn and recognize that the community has some sort of role, not just in helping the person mourn, but um, but aiding them and and staving off the impending isolation that always comes uh, that grief and I think you see it in this movie, is so terribly isolating. And um, that the, uh, the mother can't seem to find a place to, to, to be fully herself. Work is a total toil. Even the sort of advances, however generous they are from her coworkers, sort of um, go unexamined or unseen because she lives within this pervasive um, solitary loneliness. The, the presence, even the presence of her son doesn't seem to help her. Um, and the role of sleep in this movie is an interesting um, trope too, in part because she can't even find rest um, in the midst of this. Um, she can't find her own sort of Sabbath practice. She can't um, which is designed to be done in community. And it's you can't really have Sabbath without communities. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's actually a really interesting contrast to the movie we talked about last week, which is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is this kind of like unadulterated joy of Sabbath. And then this one instead, you get Sabbath is actually kind of terrifying, right? I mean, she could sleep. 
She actually, she says she can't sleep. She does sleep. It's just that when she sleeps, she has terrible, terrible nightmares. And she doesn't want to have those nightmares. And so instead, she sits in front of the television and tries to consume her way out of them, which doesn't work. Right. And and sleep is an opportunity to relive trauma at that point because she continues to dream and recreate um, the trauma that, that's led her into this isolated state to begin with. Um, Jessica, I wanted to, I, I wanted to take your initial comments and also sort of push them further in a direction because I was I was struck about by this movie and its lack of community, but I, I think it has some really interesting things to say about friendship, in in particular. Um, there are lots of scary things in the movie, um, and some of them are sort of part and parcel with the genre. There's like creepy kids, creepy adults, um, children's books, uh, bugs claws phone calls um and this stuff does get to me <laughs> like i was scared by them but then there's like actually really scary things and i think um we do a good job of compartmentalizing our life to not feel scared by the things that are truly scary um the things that cause us real anxiety um the global financial meltdown global warming um the death of a loved one Parenting terrifies me on a daily basis. Uh, and so the anxieties of our lives, the deep penetrating ones, the ones that keep us up at night are totally mundane. They're, they're actually really common. And this is why we need community. This is why we need friends so that other people can affirm in some way that what we're feeling and how we're feeling it is appropriate in some way. Um, at some point, dealing with the grief that inevitably comes into our lives, the trauma that is bound to meet each of us, uh, means that we need friends. But making friends is terrifying. At least as an adult, like I don't know how to do this any longer. Uh, and I think it's because it feels so damn vulnerable. And those of us who have been built in some way or shape by our trauma, like who we are is reflective of what has happened to us, whether we like it or not. It's things that we did not choose, but that happened. Um, how do we then talk about that within just um, without immediately piercing everyone's like finely tuned Stepford lives, right? How can we be honest when friendship in our modern times looks more like competition than sort of mutual and honest vulnerability? And so that that does prescribe in our lives a sense of loneliness that then sets in with some trauma survivors um life because ultimately you don't want to be the big gaping bleeding wound to every damn person that walks through your life it just gets so tiring and overwhelming and so it's just easier to isolate yourself right and you see that really clearly in the movie that she can't stand being that presence in her sh when she starts to realize she is that gaping wound always open always bleeding in front of her sister um and then that wonderful scene where she's at the party and both she and samuel have breakdowns and because they are rejected by the community basically because she can't stand the inane talk of these other women who are complaining about their you know everyday problems that she sees as being absurd because that's not her reality at all and then that begs the question, like, w which reality is reality? Is it the <laughs> inane 
TikTok of these women, should she want to be a part of that world when it seems that her world is so much more real and there's this tendency to retreat into it. And then you get Samuel being accused by his cousin. You know, I, there's this horrifying line where this little girl tells him he, you know, he didn't deserve to have a father and that's why his father died. And he, he pushes her out of the treehouse which I thought was a very normal reaction. (laughs) What a horrible thing. Like if there's an evil child in this movie, that's, that's the moment when the evil child breaks through and it's not Samuel, but you know, these are, those are the, are just really great moments of demonstrating how isolated they are and how terrible they feel. And in, you know, real life, not in the movie, if we don't have communities where we can have our wounds, (laughs) you're going to go crazy. And, I've been there. So then this is part of the reason we started Sick Pilgrim. We call it for the spiritually disturbed. I mean, we try to be funny. We're not always morose. But to have a place where Christians and non-Christians or people who are spiritually interested can come together and talk frankly about trauma and depression and mental illness and all the things that we don't seem to want to talk about in our church communities because we don't want to pierce that Stepford bubble that you know we don't want to be the downer at every potluck but you need to have that place where you can go and be safe and I think it's really important that we as Christians provide those communities for for people who are grieving and experiencing trauma so that it doesn't bleed out over into everything in their lives but there is a safe place to go with it yeah I mean in the 60s there was like this moment where we talked about Jesus's friend a lot like and it became like the sort of hippy dippy way to sort of like Jesus is my brother, man. Um, but we've mostly lost the ways in which God might actually be friend too. I think in our churches we don't we very rarely talk about it that way, and we talk about Christ in particular as Savior or Lord or like when we're getting very theological, like the second person of the Godhead or something. Um, but we very rarely call him friend. And Jesus recognizes uh, that that he is a friend. And in Luke, in Luke's gospel, they call him the friend of sinners and tax collectors, which I love as a title that very rarely gets ever talked about. Um, I think the biblical portrait of friendship ultimately critiques the Western ideas of independence and liberty, too, and the consumer ideals that we were talking about earlier. Um, because I think ultimately Christian friendship refuses to atomize our existence or compartmentalize our lives. Like it's asking us to be fully ourselves, trauma and all, wounds and all. And it refuses to allow us to ignore the parts of this world that we hate, the parts of ourselves that we hate, the the sort of ghosts that follow us around. Um, and, And it forces us to admit as a community, that all of this trauma is not going away. And I think that's the Babadook is such an interesting um, personification of grief, in part because the book says it never goes away. And it, it makes that promise. And then at the end, you don't vanquish the Babadook. It doesn't like you don't kill it. You don't you don't sort of exercise it. You uh, you can't send it in a herd of pigs and like off a cliff. It just goes back down into the basement, right? Um, and you and I think where you that, have to feed it. Yeah, that's an interesting. Well, and that's that I think is like the lasting image of this movie to me, right. which is you said you have to um, at the at the top of the show you you said we have to confront it and tame it, 
And I want to say, in some ways, like the the final part of all of this um, is you have to befriend it. And and that's the final hardest step, which is to say, this is me too, and I love me. And it's part of me, and I'm never not going to be this person. So I can spend my life hating it. I can spend my life bleeding, or I can say, look, this is I love this part too. And if our call, our Christian call, is toward greater acts of charity and love, I think that that's not just to the people who are wounded around us. That's to our own wounds as well. So how do we do this in our churches? I mean, aside from all going to be good visitors at Sick Pilgrim, like how do we build congregations that have better practices of allowing for spaces of grief and allowing for spaces of law? I think that is a great question that I would pose to the ministers on this show, but <laughs> I am trying in my layperson's way to make a path to talk safely about these things. And I would love to see communities gathering in churches. Um, I haven't witnessed such a thing in the churches I've participated in, but a space to um, share stories and see that you're not alone. It's so, it's not sometimes just takes one person to speak up and then the other person will admit that they felt those dark feelings too and then you're forging a friendship. Um, but I also think just changing the way that we expect mourning, expect mourners to behave. Um, you know, it's like we put a time limit on it and if you're mm. not, if you're not healed, you do start to become a scary figure in your community that will be avoided. And I, I think it's, you don't, I definitely experienced this growing up. You're marked by your trauma. And even if you aren't acting it out, even if you aren't admitting it, you will always feel marked and othered by it and a little bit on the outside. So just making those extra efforts to continue to draw in instead of just, you know, bringing the casserole after the funeral, but being aware that this person's going to feel othered potentially forever. That, you know, this is, I think we used to have a much better sense of like taking care of the widow and the orphan and we've lost that. I was basically orphaned and there was no one there drawing me back into the church, showing me that the church was my family and my community if I was losing my community at home. So those are just a few things that I would suggest, just a continual reaching out and awareness that this person may feel alone forever, not for a finite amount of time. I think too, Matt, the ministers in our current climate have been told to observe boundaries. And I, am, I agree with all of, most of what is said about observing the boundaries. Um, what I've seen a lot of people do with good advice is turn it into opportunities not to meet people in the emotional state where they are. Um, that the boundary means that you get to control how people are taken care of. And what this means is that as ministers, we typically um, won't go into places or won't feel with the people there because it's super uncomfortable for us. It's very difficult. And then we justify it after the fact by saying, well, I want to keep good boundaries or I'm, you know, I'm participating in some sort of self-care. 
And I think those become justifications for us to say like, no, that person is uh -huh. crazy <laughs> when actually they're not crazy. They're in deep pain mm -hmm. and distress. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm, I'm wondering if we as ministers are, are losing the sort of finely tuned radar that recognizes the type of pain and hurt that exists. And I think we've lost language to talk about it too. I think, I think preaching, at least as I hear it, is so willing to rest on the trite, the cliche, the bromide, instead of trying to um, use the various different genres. And I think this movie does this brilliantly, actually, to like allow the genre to sort of reform how something is expressed to um to be more imaginative and creative in the ways that we talk about this stuff and finally i think um i think a whole bunch of ministers need to deal with their own trauma and i think that's not happening either yeah. ultimately yeah. right like i at the, at the boston uh, museum of art uh, museum of fine art here there's there they have all of these beautiful asian um screens that are bit that are painted and one uh, my favorite is this black screen it's got this gold um, paint on it. It's almost leafed. Um, and it's calligraphy that says dragon recognizes dragon. And I love that. This idea is that um, that the wise recognizes the wise. But I also think like it also means that like the hurting recognizes the hurting. And I don't by shutting ourselves off to the hurt that we experience and the trauma that we've experienced then prevents us to recognize the trauma and the hurt in other yeah. people. And so I think, I mean, those are, those come to mind as I think about this and about how in my own life, I'm trying to be a better minister, pastor, caregiver for those who are in such distress. One thing that I've seen work really beautifully in a parish um, I'm Catholic, so going to a parish in Chicago is that they have consolation services and they have vespers for mourning regularly. Um, mm. And so having structured prayer time with other Christians that's rooted in the historical tradition, I think gives an organized way of bringing mourners together to grieve in community that isn't so much pressure on faith sharing or, you know, coming out with your story. You can kind of be anonymous in those sessions, but you mm. can pray together. And those things have beauty and meaning. So there's, there's a way to do it liturgically, I think, as well as through preaching and through outreach and through community. Yeah, and, and that, I mean, that stuff has deep biblical history too. I mean, the, the, the Psalms of Lament are corporate worship liturgy for people in times of loss. And they're, they're, they're not meant to be the individual story of a particular mm -hmm. person. They're meant to be these kind of uh, dramatic monologues that you can participate in as someone who is experiencing a similar loss and that will help structure for you the, the period and negotiation of that loss. I mean, so there's, there's a, some deep history of how we use use those pieces of common liturgy to to help us navigate the rough waters and I, I wonder if that might be a good segue for us too to look at some of the 
the text passages for our upcoming Sunday. Uh, this next segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So we're looking at the lectionary passages for July 3rd. We have the story of Naaman's leprosy in 2 Kings 5. We have a couple of Psalms here as well. We have Isaiah 66 on the prosperity of Jerusalem. And then from Galatians, we have Paul's exhortation to bear one another's burdens. So Jessica, as a writer and as, as a pilgrim, what strikes you about these passages in the light of the Babadook? Okay, so I'm here to confirm every stereotype you have about Catholics because, um, you know, you'll have to excuse my pitiful layperson's interpretation of these readings, but it is what I do for a living, so, you know. Um, especially the Naman reading because I feel like that one is all kinds of complicated and has all this rich symbolism that I know is going over my head, but here's what I'm taking away from that one is that Naman wants to be healed, right? I'm asking for confirmation. <laughs> like, I'm getting this right. He wants right. to be healed. Yes. Um, but there is both a sense of entitlement at work here, and there's a reluctance and maybe a cynicism of what he's being told is required for his healing. Um, all things that I can identify with. Uh, mm. He, he wants somebody to come out and like wave his hands over him and make him well, make it go away. Like you're a powerful prophet, right? You're a healer. Get rid of this. Get rid of what's in me. And um, the answer is, no, it doesn't really work like that. You have to do this. And he's like, I don't want to do that. And I feel like that all the time. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to therapy. I don't want to go to confession. I don't want to, you know tend to my inner child that's ridiculous i don't believe in that i don't believe that works but yeah it, like it turns out that my inner child actually does need some serious tending and there's some things that are embarrassing about therapy that i that i really don't want to face but i i need to so in the film that work that has to be done is the tending of this awful grief instead of just trying to numb it or avoid it because when we do we risk it becoming something much more sinister and dangerous. So then I turn to the psalm. Um, you've turned my morning into dancing. You've taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. And this is where I think we get it, you know. Too often in church we expect people to go from morning to dancing like that, right? In a flash. Too quick. And then you're supposed to keep on dancing. You're not supposed to be mourning anymore. Your morning's done. And you want to skip to the end, like Prince Humperdinck in the wedding scene in The Princess Bride. Skip to the end. You know, I don't want to see you doing this slow work of grief, and I don't want to do it myself. But it is a long, slow work, and it's a circular work. So, yeah, you'll be mourning, and then you'll be dancing, and then you'll be mourning, and then you'll be dancing, and you'll be grateful and full of praise, and then you'll be mourning. And maybe sometimes you'll be doing it all at the same time. Um, but there's always going to be that mourning that needs to be transformed again and again. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like the tides in that way, right? It's going to come in and it's going to go right. out and then it's going to come in again and it's going to go out. And some days your boat's going to be high and other days it's going to be really low. But um, we don't ever expect the tides not to come right. in and out. And similarly with grief, it's going to do the same thing. I think the idea that that mourning turns into dancing and back into mourning is in some ways its own yes, dance, right? Yes, it's, oh, that's it's, beautiful. It's the two-step that you do back and forth. It's, um, um, 
it's that it speeds up in a moment of celebration and then slows down into periods of lament. And that type of dynamic movement is actually reflective of the life we live. If we were to just dance mm -hmm. full bore all of the time, we would no. never make it. And we'd be crazy. Um, and that's where the this psalm is hopeful and it's still beautiful. Even if you know your morning's going to return, the fact that you can always count on the dancing too, it's not always going to be this way. It's going to change. It's going to ebb and flow. But accepting that both are part of the picture forever. Yeah, and give and give thanks for both of them right. being part of the picture. Right, I mean, and that's the, the part of verse 12 of that psalm is, and, and I'll yeah. give thanks to you forever. Just... Not because you turned my morning into dancing, but because I get to mourn and I get to yes. dance. Beautiful. So the third um, scripture passage that stands out to me was bear one another's burdens and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Um, uh, good old Galatians. Good old Galatians. So this is yeah. pretty much my favorite thing about Christianity ever. Um, mm. It's what my book love and salt is about it's at the core of spiritual friendship i feel like it's the core of christian community um charles williams who was one of the lesser known inklings you know like the little buddy of tolkien and lewis um he was also a supernatural thriller fan and writer and he loved this idea too that we could literally take on each other's burdens physical emotional and I mean, he really went for it in a supernatural way that you should, it is our obligation as Christians to pray to take on others' fear and grief. Um, and it's interesting to think about what you said earlier about pastoral, you know, the need for self-care, the need to protect yourself from taking on too much of another person's grief, <laughs> because that's also dangerous, but that we are called to support each other in that way. Um, so I've written about this before many times, but I've also experienced it. I've had people do it for me. I've had a community carry me through a time of deep grief. Um, not when I was young, when I really probably needed it the most, but as I've gotten older, when I've, I'm still going through those cycles where I drop off and I'm, it's as if it just happened all over again. And now I have that kind of community that can carry me and that helps me to bear that burden. And I've done it for other people. But I also think that we, sometimes share each other's burdens without consent um, and we don't pray mm. for it. It's just a natural, <laughs> it's just a, it's a part of living in community with people is that you are going to share each other's grief in unintentional ways. And when that happens, it's when things can get ugly. Um, there's also, this is one of my other things to talk and write about now, there's a scientific case being made for generational sin and studies have mm -hmm. shown that we pass on trauma in our genetic material. And so people are starting to relate this to Old Testament writings. And so maybe we are suffering for each other's sins and trauma and grief without each other's consent. Maybe it is built into the way humanity works and the human experience works. And I think we see this in the Babadook too, that there's an unintentional sharing of burden between mother and son, an unavoidable sharing. But when it becomes intentional and when they start facing it head on, that's when we start to see a potential healing. Right. There's a there's a beautiful moment where the son makes her promise that they're going to protect each other. Exactly. And and it and it really does feel mutual. Yes. And there comes a moment where 
he does have to yes. protect her and in many ways protects her from herself and is protecting himself from mm-hmm. her but he seems to recognize um that the babadook is in charge here right that, that the grief is the thing that is driving this and that there is another part of the mother that needs um needs a voice needs an advocate and so the son steps in in order to be that advocate on her behalf even when she can't do it yes um and so she he shoulders that burden of looking after her interest when she can't do it too yeah. which is I, I think among the more powerful points of the movie um is that he's he's trying to love her back into the existence that she that he knows she's capable of um and in the end of the movie she's able to do that too she's able to affirm what he does best which is speak honestly and um and be imaginative and creative and vivid um so i i love this idea that i mean sometimes it's there is real power when the unintentional burden becomes an intentional burden Mm -hmm. that's shared yes where you realize like oh i didn't choose this but right now i'm gonna choose it on behalf of this other person um yeah thanks adam thanks for both thanks both of you for that adam were there other places were there other scriptural tie-ins here that struck you well yeah i you know i was thinking about this movie there's there's a couple of references to the big bad wolf in this movie that's really interesting to me um in some ways i mean she she watches the old um silent films that that with the wolf who um which is like from uh, a visual aspect has is ominous and totally really works with the movie. By the way, like uh, she she watches things late at night that I would not watch late at night if I were trying to keep myself up with a demon in my house. I'd, I'd be well, wa- I'd be watching like old episodes of Cheers and like maybe some Star Trek. I know. She's she's watching some it's weird phantasmagoric stuff. Twenty four hour yeah. creepy cartoon network. I know. Yeah, it, re- it really is a very strange, <laughs> very strange channel. Weird. I don't know if the Australians have programmed there. It's a little that weird. That old Big Bad Wolf cartoon where he makes sausage out of the pigs is really traumatizing <laughs> because I showed it to my kids right. and they still won't eat sausage because of it. Like I, <laughs> I just have to say that, seems wise, that, actually. that is a really horrific um, early Disney cartoon. So yeah, I don't recommend it. <laughs> well, and, and there's a, I mean, exactly. Yeah. And the, well, I think the late night television really gets at the sort of schizophrenicness of the movie and what it feels like to try and be in a state of, um, of, of trying to find some port in the storm mm-hmm. and like going from channel to channel to channel feels like your brain like every time you blink you're seeing something new um I, but the thing ab- about the big bad wolf that's interesting to me is that um this story this little this children's story has power still and i think that the the fact that the babadook story shows up as a children's yeah. book is reflective of this larger idea that like we we learn these lessons about stories very mm-hmm. early and um and one of the things i think we learn early is that stories are malleable and and i think about this with respect to the babadook like this movie could have been a sort of 1990s new zealand jane campion <laughs> movie about the grief of a young mother as she deals with a, yeah, a child right and it would have been very character driven and very talky um but jennifer kent 
decided to use a different genre in order to tell what amounts to the same story. And, um, and there's a lot of authors and writers have done this. I, th I think of um, uh, Wicked by Gregory Maguire, Grendel, which was written in the 70s mm -hmm. um, by John Gardner, that is trying to tell the story from the perspective of the bad the baddie, right. the, 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 the antagonist. Yep. And I think we even get that in this movie, which the last shot, we get the perspective. It goes POV from the Babadook's yeah. perspective. And, um, and it got me thinking about what would it mean to preach the alternative sides of the two lectionary stories that are given? Like, we have the majority report in scripture, but could you tell these stories that also get to something deep and um, a, like a deep vein of theology. And so I was just playing around with them. And the Naaman story could be um, could be a, a, a moment where what if what if Elisha really was just fooling him, was just trying to trick <laughs> Naaman and was trying to send I've him away. Right. Yeah. But Naaman went and did it anyway. And God worked in spite of Elisha. Yeah. Um, there's all sorts of reason to believe that Elisha sees Naaman as um, as mm -hmm. an enemy, so wouldn't this have been a funny joke to play on the ruler who shows up and then everyone comes down and sees him bathing in the in the River <laughs> Jordan, and then suddenly, in spite of Elisha, he gets healed. Now, what does that say about God working in spite of us, and even when our poor intentions and our and our desire to sort of make people look mm -hmm. foolish? they're healed anyway I, there's something to be said about that and then similarly um in the uh the the luke story where jesus is telling the disciples like if you're not welcome in a town dust off your feet and move on and i also think like what if jesus is doing this because disciples are mostly terrible <laughs> they don't know what they're doing and he's doing it in on behalf of all of those towns who are like, oh gosh, we got to host another disciple. <laughs> you know, I like I know ministers pretty well. I am one, and most of them are totally insufferable. Uh -huh. And so, um, what if the gift of the departing disciple is for the town itself, not the disciple? Yeah. And so I just, the Babadook got me thinking about how to turn stories around and to mess with them so that they're still true and both can yeah. be true without compromising I love doing that, pressing them for the counterintuitive reading, I think makes it so fresh and so much more relatable. <laughs> and I always want to do that in my writing. You should really go into preaching. That was good. <laughs> I think I think the trick to doing that is to is to figure out how to do it so you can hold both of them. Right. That because the, because the the danger is that it that it just becomes the gimmick, right? right? Or like you know, it, it becomes the sermon where I think of a way of talking about this story that no one's ever thought of in human history before, which always strikes me as being a little bit right. dangerous, um, and and a, and potentially a little bit conceited on the part of the pastor. And so I, I think the trick is to to be able to hold them both with honesty and not be like, come to my church where I will tell you why all the Bible stories you think mean one thing actually mean the exact opposite. Yeah. No, I love though. <laughs> well, but I think there there's a there's a Jewish tradition of Havruta where 
you do push the meanings in any number of different directions. And I mean, to tie it back into friendship in the presence of the community so that the community actually tells you when you've actually when you've overstepped gone too far. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and ha- Havruta literally means friendship at that point. Wow. That's really fascinating. Well, I hope that we have gotten enough perspectives on this story in this film to to fill our imaginations for the day. I think that probably should wrap it up for The Babadook and for Ordinary 14. Uh, if you want to check out The Babadook, folks, it's on Netflix right now, at least as of when I'm recording this. This is also the point in our podcast where we thank Jessica for joining us and guiding our conversation. If you like what you heard from her, you can find her at Sick Pilgrim or go buy her book, Love and Salt, wherever books of exceedingly high quality are sold. Jessica, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was Thanks, fun. Jessica. But now, folks, it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just the chance to get another little preacher thought from Adam and myself on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for the week? So, I want to recommend the first three minutes of Chef's Table Season 2 on Netflix. The first episode is about uh, Grant Aikett's and his restaurant, Alinea, which is in Chicago, and I want to make the case that the first three minutes of this show on season two is the most inspiring film moment I've had all year. It's totally empowering. It's a moment where um, Grant Aikens, who is a sort of modernist chef um, who's got boundless creativity, is talking about drawing on other disciplines for creative inspiration. And so he sought uh, inspiration from the Art Institute of Chicago, which we talked about last week. And he comes to this conclusion that plate manufacturers are dictating how he serves food. And so he says, uh, what if we just serve food on a tablecloth? And the way that David Gelb, who's the document, uh, the, the filmmaker there, then cuts this dish that they serve on a tablecloth gives you some indication that removing strictures that we don't even know are strictures can open up new fonts and wells of creativity. Um, This three minutes brought me just massive delight about the freedom that exists within our creativity and how just breaking outside of these superimposed rules can feel totally liberating. And the more and more I think about it, the more and more I'm convinced that the chef is a very good comp to preacher because basically you show up to work and you redo the things over and over again and you remake dishes over and over again. And finally, the sign of a good chef is not that the dish has survived, it's that it's been eaten. The sign of a good chef is not that the dish has survived, it's that it's been eaten. And so I, I in watching that three minutes, it just speaks worlds about what it means to be in a creative profession like preaching. Um, and ultimately, we can't aim at posterity um, or we ourselves will be eaten. We have to aim at making this word delicious. Even when it's full of lamentation and woe, like Ezekiel's scroll, it can still taste sweet as honey. And that's our job to prepare it so that it can be eaten. Don't make it taste like some saccharine sugar sweet garbage. Make it taste like honey. Honey is alive. It has... Um, the work of animals in it and it is so so good and so i want everyone to go and watch that uh that first three minutes and if you have ideas about 
uh, how it inspired you. I'd love to hear them. That's what I got, Matt. How about you? So, well, I, I've got to register my little bit of skepticism here because I, I feel like um, I just want to point out the irony of kind of lifting up the ephemeral nature of cooking as a model for preaching. But we only know about that because we have watched it become immortalized in a Netflix documentary. <laughs> And, and right. part of and, and part Critique of the culture noting. and part of the culture of the kind of chef celebrity at this point is about the status of making it on film, and so like, it, I'm no longer convinced that they are making something to be eaten. I'm convinced that they're making something to be consumed by a camera, and so it, it and maybe there's a little bit of both. Okay, but I, I I'm not, I don't know. I, I watched my three minutes. It was three minutes. I watched it. You told me to before. I did. It was okay. But I'm. I'm oh not, come I'm, on! I'm not, I'm not. I'm not there with you. I'm not there with you. Oh, I loved it. Okay, so come, Arbor, arbiters of of food and preaching out in uh, podcast land, come and take a side between Matt or <laughs> myself. <laughs> uh, so my recommendation this week is another podcast. It's called The Illusionist by a woman named Helen Saltzman. She's part of the Radiotopia network alongside 99% Invisible. Uh, it's not The Illusionist like David Copperfield illusions. It's The Allusionist, A-L-L, as in she is deeply in love with the words. Uh, the, the closest comp I have for this uh, is the old uh, William Sapphire on language columns that I used to read in the New York Times Magazine when I was in high school. And that yes, that does say something about me. <laughs> um, except that the major difference is that she's not a pedant. And she's not, you know, in the worst kind of sapphire column. She's not just mansplaining why everything traditional is better. She actually gets the, like, always moving, shifting sands of language. And she loves them deeply. And so I, I just want to commend that. She had a recent episode called Big Lit, which is about the history of the idea of classics as a literary genre. So she talks about how the word classic first emerges uh, to describe certain features of the British aristocracy, hence classic. But then very quickly, it became bundled with the interests of that aristocracy, which were very often in Greco-Roman culture. And then, of course, at some point, it emerges that we now have classics of British literature or even classics of American literature. But she's clever enough to realize that every time we talk about whether or not some book is really a classic, we're also kind of debating what the very idea of a classic means in the first place. So they talk about, for instance, uh, Great Gatsby. And the the context of Great Gatsby is very often first presented in some kind of high school English class as classic, at which point it becomes almost impenetrable and not particularly interesting to a 16-year-old who has no concept about the existential weight of watching time pass, which is what's, what seems to be at the center of that story. Whereas read it again in your 30s or 40s, and it has some different hook to it. And class, Matt. It right, right, right. Class. Um, it strikes me that the the kind of linguistic acumen that she has here seems really critical for the work of interpreting scripture. It's that the ability to recognize that words are contingent and evolving and language changes over time, and to be able to say that without this kind of retro judgment upon it or this kind of dumb nostalgia for a time when men were men and women were women and classic meant classic. Uh, she recognizes that, you know, for example, if, if when Deuteronomy talks about hesed or when Jesus talks about love, that they're not just invoking 
static concepts that have been quote unquote carved in stone. They're participating in this kind of long evolving cultural work of definition and fluid definition. So I I encourage this podcast to you. It is 15 minutes long. Whatever day of the week you come in in the morning and work on scripture for that Sunday sermon, I want you to listen to The Illusionist on your commute that morning just to get you in the headspace of being able to think about what these words mean and have meant and where in the changing definition of them they were at the moment that those phrases were written down and what they mean for us now in that relationship. It's a good tune-up for exegesis. That's what I've got. That sounds great. I'll have to go check that out and then tell you why it's all wrong. Yeah, that's uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that about wraps it up for this episode of Technicolor Jesus, but we're not quite done yet. We have invited our friend and pastor, Becca Messman, to come in and choose next week's episode. And by the power of movie magic, she is here to let us know what we're going to watch. Take it away, Becca. Hey, everybody. I feel the need, the need for speed. Yes, I picked. Top Gun. What is so catchy about this movie? Is it the chrome and the pectoral muscles and the leering glances that lure us like an old beer commercial? Or is it deeper about the past and our ego and our country and even our death? Let's talk about it together. So Matt, you ready to ride into the danger zone, man? Uh, I guess. This movie is just one long movie music montage but i guess we'll have to i'll give it another shot <laughs> it's not it's not it's not my fa- it's not my favorite y'all convince me it's not my favorite but I'll, i i stand ready to be converted maybe yeah not. i don't know i'm pretty stubborn i think this might be our first tom cruise movie though it's definitely our first tom cruise movie oh, long overdue yeah hopefully not our last tom cruise movie at some point magnolia oh, yeah. will show up jack reacher 2 is coming out in the fall <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to find us on SoundCloud and find us on iTunes. If you have questions about the show, if you want to tell us how we got it all wrong, if you want to praise if you want to praise our great insight, if you'd like to suggest a guest, come to our Facebook page and leave a message for us. Also, leave us a review on iTunes. They're invaluable in helping other folks find the show. If you like the show, tell a friend, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Mother. Tell your children not to walk my way Tell your children not to hear my words What they mean, what they say Mother Mother Can you keep them in the dark for a while? Can you have them